Hello and welcome to The Chiefs, a new strand of Monocle 24's big interview series. I'm Tyler Brule. Over the course of the series, we'll be speaking to chief execs, chief marketing officers, chief strategists, editors-in-chief, CEOs, and more. But today we start in Basel at the HQ of the global pharma leader, Novartis. CEO Vas Narasimhan has only been at the helm of Novartis since 2018, but his pioneering work in developing and licensing new drugs for the Swiss pharmaceutical giant spans over a decade. Having led the vaccine effort during 2009's H1N1 pandemic, Narasimhan is arguably in a unique position to respond to the current threat of COVID-19. As one of Switzerland's largest employers, Novartis is not only setting benchmarks in the realm of science and medicine, but policymakers and business leaders alike are looking to Novartis to shape the future of the way we work. Vast Narasimhan joined me down the line from Basel. I'm very curious if we could maybe look at going into this crisis. And when you look at a company like Novartis, what types of measures were already in place? If you could just maybe take us through the timeline, end of last year, going into January, how did a company like yours observe and, of course, react? I think when you take a step back and you look at Novartis over the last couple of years, we've been on a journey of cultural transformation and digital transformation that I think set us up to be reasonably resilient when this pandemic hit. From a cultural standpoint, we moved from what was a more authoritarian kind of top-down culture to what we call our inspired, curious, and unbossed culture, a much more empowering culture with more servant leadership, devolving decision-making into the organization so people could make the decisions they think make sense and leaders really lead. At the same time, we went on a pretty big agenda to deploy digital technology across the company. We as an industry are late to that move, but I think the fact that we did that set us up well for the changes. So I think in January, the pandemic emerged. I've had a history of dealing with these and that I led the Novartis vaccine response in 2009 and 10 to the H1N1 pandemic. So I think we were watching in China, we tried to act quickly with our own organization to ask people to work from home, closing our sites. And so we kind of knew that uh, we might have to go uh, in this direction. I think it did catch us a bit off guard in March, how fast it all happened. But overall, the company has responded well. And what did this mean on the ground at the time? Uh, If you think about actually being in the trenches as a pharmaceutical company, as such a big global player in China, in Asia, in terms of your relationship, obviously, with medical providers, with governments, etc. What type of mobilization had to happen there? Yeah, you know, I think it was an interesting set of circumstances in, the, in both China, Japan, as well as many other Asian markets. We had to act fast. We had to move completely to a digital approach. Of course, we have supply chains in Asia as well. And so a few things I, I would note. One, the redundancies we have in pharmaceutical supply chains, at least in our company. I mean, we produce 72 billion doses of medicine a year for over 800 million patients. I think we're either the largest or second largest producer of medicines in the world. So we have a robust supply chain. So actually our supply chains held up very well. In China, we went to scale with engaging patients and physicians through digital technology. So we reached, I think, upwards of 900,000 physicians at one point through digital broadcast, WeChat, working with Tencent, uh, working with some of the other tech providers there. And similarly with patient groups, we were able to make really far-reaching communications to enable patients to get information that they needed. 
that was a huge learning that's enabled us to tackle similar problems in Europe and in the U.S. Just to tell one anecdote, in Japan, it was unheard of for Japanese physicians, so-called senseis, to get online to communicate regarding latest uh, you know, medical advances. Now that's become the standard way of operating. So because of this pandemic, we've seen a complete switch in the use of digital technologies in that country. And Japan's a good example because on on one level, we know that Japan leads in so many ways, but also Japan is incredibly traditional. It's incredibly conservative. You know, Also, when you look at, as you said, information flow in medicine, et cetera, is that something that Novartis was, was really sort of pushing and leading? And you would say you've become a bit of a benchmark in that territory, others also following your lead? I think we're amongst the leaders in getting set up to do this kind of digital communication with physicians, telemedicine. I would say also where one of the areas we try to be one of the leaders on as well is in clinical trials, our ability to work with patients in clinical trials. So I think we were well set up to, I think, have a big step forward with the pandemic. But the pandemic has been a huge accelerator, uh, accelerated in multiple dimensions. Of course, physicians now are scaling up telemedicine around the world, United States, Japan, and in China, but also across multiple European countries. Patients are now much more online. Social networks of physicians are exploding, but also internally at the company, I think there was skepticism within our sales marketing organizations regarding these technologies. Now they've had to embrace them at scale and learn how to use them. So it's been a transformation on both sides of the equation. Fast, I'm curious, what has worked and what has not worked? If you go back to supply chains, uh, were there some fundamental, are there some live learnings even right now when you look across the business, you say, okay, hopefully we're not going to go through something on the scale again anytime soon, if ever. But when when you look at the state of business, and, and I think it's very clear, we're in a point right now as measures start to lift, we move into a bit of finger pointing, uh, we move into a period of head scratching. When you look at your own business, and maybe also certainly the partnerships around you, what do you see has worked and, and where does there need to be areas for improvement? So first, I'd say from a supply chain standpoint, the importance of globally linked supply chains, but also having the ability to have redundancies in the supply chain is incredibly important in an organization like ours at the scale that we operate. I I am concerned by some of the push right now to nationalize, once again, elements of the pharmaceutical supply chain, whether they're innovative drugs or generic drugs. This typically happens after pandemics. It happened as well in the world of vaccine manufacturing after 2009 and 10. It kind of dissipates over time. But I think the world has to be cautious that these globally linked supply chains are actually what creates resilience in the system because we have multiple suppliers in multiple countries. If you balkanize that, I think you're going to have a more difficult time building resilience in the system. It's kind of counterintuitive for policymakers, but that that I think is incredibly important. Another smaller point on the supply chain is we've learned, you know, we've historically had very high levels of inventory. We've wanted in the past to drive that down to improve our cash conversion cycle from a cash flow standpoint. We're learning through this pandemic the fact that we hold those inventory levels creates tremendous resilience in these kind of tail risk situations. I think some of the other things that have emerged in this pandemic from a collaboration standpoint is we're seeing unprecedented levels of R&D collaboration right now across the industry. 
I'm co-chairing an effort with Bill Gates with the COVID accelerator that Gates Foundation is running. The U.S. NIH is running a, a large-scale collaboration. There's another uh, informal collaboration that's happening. But I think it's hard to fully describe the scale of these R&D collaborations to rapidly find solutions to this pandemic. That's something that's very new. That's working, I think, extremely well. So those are some of the learnings I think we've had. Some of the disruptions we've had certainly are around personal protective equipment, the fact that suddenly countries would block the movement of personal protective equipment, which meant some of our factories, we had to scramble to try to source personal protective equipment for the people making critical medicines for patients. That's been you know, an interesting journey. What was also a good learning for us is we could always find supply when we needed it. We just had to be really fast to adapt to the situation. As we were saying a bit earlier, you know, there's this disillusionment right now. We're seeing so many mixed messages as we emerge out of this, because I think people have looked to international organizations, they've looked to national capitals and have been scratching their heads. And and when you look at your role, and, and of course, you mentioned the Gates Foundation and many others, is there room maybe for the private players to take a leadership role? Because there has been a bit of an absence, certainly if we look at some governments anyway. I think what's striking to me when you look at how we respond to these kinds of healthcare crises is in the end, industries like ours have to play a significant leadership role. There's massive discussions about scaling diagnostics all around the world. In the end, while there was a hope to do that through uh, disseminated uh, laboratories, in the end, you need large scale industry, lab, you know, diagnostic companies to scale their, their capabilities to bring testing to patients all around the world, and that's what's happening. When you look at the ability to generate high-quality data on either repurposed drugs, new drugs, or vaccines, while there are many kind of national initiatives, in the end, it is the biopharmaceutical industry that's able to run large-scale, double-blind, randomized, controlled clinical studies that are properly designed to really get to answers, and those answers will start coming over the course of the summer. And then even when you look further on in terms of the ultimate solutions, you know, what we hope will be definitive vaccines, again, it comes back to the private industry. So I think on that front, on the technology front, clearly we have a leadership role to play. What's been striking to me and one we're navigating is how we also have a role to play in defining ways of working. I mean, when should people come back? When should people not come back? How should they work? Yeah, as a very large company, we've learned that we set a standard and there's no one else who's going to set that standard for us. We all have to make those decisions uh, within the ambiguous situation we're in, give our people guidance and understand that when we do that, it gets reported on and many other companies follow. That's been a new leadership, I think, for us that we're learning we play, but I think it's an important one. And it's interesting, within the borders of the country we're both in doing this interview right now, it's very curious to see, on, on one side, you think, of course, that Bern and the Cantons are, of course, you know, setting the tone. But it's also interesting, you see how much behind the scenes, you know, industry is working to actually set the parameters. If you want to have a haircut, for example, a lot of what becomes those measures actually is being set by industry. So it's interesting what, what you're saying as well, that yes, you've got your peer set within the private sector looking at you. But I'm sure whatever you do, given the scale of Novartis, it's also going to affect policy at a, at a federal level as well. I think you're absolutely right. Well, first, I, I will reflect and I have it's fascinating to watch 
perhaps the variance uh, in the lifting of restrictions across Europe. And I think that will make a fascinating study as you look at countries like Switzerland, which prioritized a certain set of sectors. And, you know, whether uh, you look at Germany, Italy, Spain, everyone has a, a different priority list. But I, I clearly recognize within Switzerland, uh, within some of the other countries where we are one of the largest employers or amongst the largest employers, our actions do also shape how the government thinks about the pace of what they're planning on doing. And that gets tricky. I mean, when we think about what do we do for our own associates on testing, as an example, how out of step do we want to be with national or regional policy within the countries we operate? And knowing that if we do that, that is going to have knock-on effects. These are certainly discussions we have as a leadership team. And you bring it up. What is your view on testing? And as again, as a big global player, are you able to have a flat view when you think about employees and partners? Or is it one thing for the U.S. versus how you work in Switzerland versus how you might do something in Southeast Asia? Yeah, we've had an evolving story in general on our approach to working in this pandemic. We started out with uh, global measures. We are now moving to a situation where, you know, we'll move to an approach where we give employees in, in individual countries freedom to make their decisions on whether they work in the office or at home based on when national restrictions lift. We start that on, on May 11th. And then we have each country design their approach on testing, how many people are going to be in, in different situations on our campuses based on the national guidances. We're having a very difficult time creating, even though we operate in 150 countries, difficult for us to create a global standard on this. And so we really are devolving the authority into our country teams to manage based on local regulations. Is this a point of frustration for the global consumer, the, the global citizen? Because, listen, you know, there's actually probably, it's almost unprecedented the amount of benchmarking you see in daily news feeds around the world. What are the Austrians doing? How is the New Zealand PM dealt with things? Then people scratching their heads in Canada and the UK saying, well, why is it working this way? Why are there no dates attached to anything? Do we need to look to Geneva? Do we need to be looking to a philanthropic billionaire sitting in Seattle to be giving some type of foundation that everyone should be working towards? Because, of course, on one side, yeah, nations are sovereign and then they can do what they want. But there's so much, you know, disparity between different approaches to coming out of lockdowns and, and also what daily hygiene measures are as well. It's interesting. We had an exponential effect of a virus. So, of course, started in the last part of last year. Growth was exponential. Exponential things tend to catch human beings by surprise. And so in March, we had this explosion and then people are scrambling. I think it's very understandable that we have this huge variation in how countries respond based on, frankly, a lack of knowledge. We don't have enough scientific knowledge around the virus, around the medical care, around the treatment, around the public health measures. What I see happening now is an exponential growth in our understanding and on, on science-based progress. When you look at it in the next few months, we will have probably 100 clinical trials read out. I think there are, are now over 5,000 publications, perhaps on PubMed, around this virus in some form or another, over 500 clinical trials running. And so we're going to have this explosion in knowledge. And what I hope will happen over the course of the summer, before any second waves or, or future outbreaks hit, is we could have a more standardized approach, hopefully regionally, maybe globally, based on that exponential growth in knowledge. I think that's what's coming. We have to be patient. It has to be done rigorously. But I would hope by the fall we can have a better, 
more harmonized approach around the world. One thing we're hearing from leadership around the world, you know, and whether we're in Berlin or, or we can be in, in Tokyo looking forward to the games next year, is everyone talks about the vaccine. And many are saying, you know, there is not going to be any type of normal normal again until there's a vaccine. But yet we know there are many infectious diseases where vaccines don't exist and we get by day by day. Is there a Novartis view or do you have a personal view on the notion of the vaccine and how critical it is for, of course, measures to be properly lifted and we and we move back to a place that I think most of us want to be again? My view as a now this is more as a, a clinician scientist than a quote unquote Novartis view, I think, is that we're going to see incremental improvements over time that will enable us to to bring back life to quote unquote normal, though it's never it's, it will always life is always evolving. We always feel like we go back to a normal, but actually, you know, life is always going to keep evolving on this planet. But I think we're going to understand better how to use existing medicines to mitigate the severity of the disease. I think clinical practice is already learning how to manage this disease better and better. I think we'll understand which public health measures work and don't work. I think some of the first wave of new drugs that are being developed, whether those are antibodies, convalescent sera, which we get from infected patients who have recovered, or other small molecule drugs will come, which if, even if they don't cure the infection, will mitigate it. And then you could see a world where Yes, eventually we'd like to get to a vaccine, but there's going to be a lot of progress even before that. I do think with respect to vaccines, we have to be humble in terms of our expectations and that we want to ensure a vaccine is both safe and effective. And the risk-benefit equation flips for a vaccine. I spent most of my career developing vaccines, whereas with most of the drugs we develop, we know somebody's infected. And then, of course, we want to treat to remove the infection or at least mitigate the effect of the infection. With a vaccine, we give it to an otherwise healthy population. Even a relatively small side effect in that vaccine could have negative consequences from a benefit-risk standpoint. So to ensure that we have a safe and efficacious vaccine is really important, and it's not as straightforward as just getting a vaccine that generates an immune response. It has to have a clean safety profile as well. If we go back to the public sector, and if we look at people who are sitting in health ministries, there's going to be this moment and living through a moment that people aren't going to put their foot on the gas until they see that something is coming down the track, that they're hearing announcements that vaccine trials are going well. Or again, do you think it's going to be multi-track? Some countries are going to say, look, we need to push forward with our economy. We need to push forward with social life. And as you said, will there ever be a normal normal? Maybe not. But and other places are going to be much more risk Or do you think it starts to flatten out and in a globalized world, everyone knows they need to move forward with a vision that, yeah, a vaccine is somewhere in the future, but it could be as, you know, I don't know, what are we, a a year out or three years out? We don't know, do we? We don't know. And I don't don't have a crystal ball as different countries react, but I do reflect on human history a lot. I'm a a big... uh, believer in kind of the big history books and and how what we can learn from them. And of course, it's easy to forget that it's less than 50 years ago, we lived with many infections that uh, didn't have great vaccines that had great severity. It's within, you know, post 1960s that we really had the explosion of vaccines that really brought down deaths from a range of infectious diseases and society operated. You know, I I wonder if the collective psychology gets more comfortable with this as we understand better, again, how to track and trace as diagnostics improve, as as all the other things we've discussed start to get better. If our comfort levels will go up, 
we will still have to live with the fact there could be isolated outbreaks. We have had isolated outbreaks of many things, whether it's measles still, sadly, in this world today, meningitis, more severe things, you know, in places like Africa with Ebola, and then we contain them. And so you could see an approach where I think incrementally we get to a better and better place and that collection of that incremental progress then lets societies around the world completely get back to a more normal, normal way of living with the understanding that we will have to deal with the outbreaks when they happen. Just maybe let's change tracks, but you talk about a normal way of living. And there's, of course, been this you know, discussion and we've we've read so many column inches over certainly the last probably two months about teleworking and digital working and the power of Zoom. And, and we've all been able to cope through this reasonably well as business leaders, uh, etc. If I sort of look to the direction of Basel from Zurich, it's quite remarkable what you've built as a company in terms of this little bit of an architectural wonderland, you could say. It's a bit of an urban planning oasis, the campus that you've developed. And, and that's about bringing people together. And so on one side, you know, we talk about you know, the power of digitization, but there's also something when you're commissioning and working with incredible architects and creating something which is this great built environment, which of course attracts talent. I think it obviously makes your, your peer set stand to attention. How do you see the relationship moving forward? Because on one side, you've created this great place. And I'm wondering, the effects, does Novartis even do some thinking around the positive effects of good design and what that means, not just for attracting talent, but also good design when it comes to one's own mental health? You know, it's interesting. The quote I love that our our architects here often remind me of is, we create our space and then our space shapes us. And I think we're at a place that really engenders a feeling where your best ideas come, come about, Novartis new ideas. And you certainly feel that on our campus. I think with this pandemic, though, it's going to accelerate our own reflections on, you know, what I think some commentators have called distributed working. How do you move to a a world where you say there's work from home and work from the office to a more continuous way of thinking of distributed working, where you have this beautiful space where people can come together, but maybe now it's coming together for those moments when collaboration matters or when certain things need to get done, but it's still as accepted that you work from home or you work from another setting and we get to a more a continuum of distributed working. I think what that's gonna mean for us is how we think about those spaces, we anyway had a move towards activity-based working and trying to get away from fixed desks and really creating spaces where people could explore, collaborate even more on our campuses. I think that's gonna accelerate I think we won't need the same quantum of space that we have today. We'll probably focus down on our key key buildings and and try to see how we can share our space with the rest of the community as well. So I think this will lead to shifts in how we utilize the space. But I'm not yet convinced that there isn't a power to bringing our people together in an extraordinary, beautiful building to inspire them and remind them of what Novartis is as a company. And almost just finally, before we go, do you think that that almost can maybe filter down to the consumer as well? Can Novartis also play a role in thinking about our built environment? We sit in Switzerland where there's been a concerted effort over the last probably two decades to make sure that people have access to balconies. You see all of these retrofits going on in Basel, in Zurich, old buildings that never had outdoor space now suddenly have outdoor space. And you can see throughout this, certainly through a lockdown, this is incredibly important for public health. And you also 
see the revitalization of, of neighborhoods. You see the power of the pharmacy, places where people come together. And I'm wondering, is there maybe thinking that Novartis can do around that as well? So on one side, of course, we can think about the necessary drugs that we have to consume in these times. But on the flip side, there's also something about the built environment, about the urban environment and the impact on mental health and public health in a broader sense. I think the way we're looking at this is how do our sites more and more fit in with the communities around us. And that's, I think, been an awakening. We're looking at that now. We've made an announcement. We plan to open our Basel campus in the coming years and, and enable it to just be part of the community and try to enable organizations to sit within the campus and make it a place where people can also experience the beauty of the architecture and, and the natural spaces that we have in the campus. We have a large footprint of manufacturing sites around the world. How can we actually rethink the use of space in those sites, again, in the context of the community, whether it's how we generate energy, how we can use the energy generated on our sites to support the communities around us. So I think right now we're in a, a moment in time, especially given the importance of how we impact the environment, we're rethinking our use of space. And we are a big user of space given the size of our company and the places that we operate. That's something we're really on a journey on to take the next step, I guess, and the way we shape spaces and shape the communities we work in. Bastian Rossman, thank you very, very much uh, for talking to us. Thank you, Tyler. Really enjoyed it. My thanks to Bastian Rassman of Novartis for joining us on this first episode of the Chief's Edition of The Big Interview. Up next, look out for our next episode with UBS CEO Sergio Armotti. The Big Interview was produced by Paige Reynolds and edited by Jolene Goffin and Maylie Evans in London. In Zurich, I'm Tyler Brule. Thank you very much for listening.